0: You know, I would show up to parties at Adam's house, I would go to the concerts, and I would try to pretend like I was having fun and like it was the good old times. But it would bring up so much painful stuff for me that it wasn't fun, and I would have to be burying the feelings in order to just try to enjoy it. So I stopped showing up as much. And so I really did feel like I lost a big part of me, not just the success and not just the the career, I didn't know who I was at that point. I, I had lost so much of whom I had I had thought I was to my core, uh, and leaving this void uh, that was hard to fill. And the only way I really knew how to fill it was with self medicating with alcohol.
1: I'm Doug Bopes personal trainer, best selling author, and entrepreneur. And I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopst, and today's guest is Ryan Dusick. Ryan is an associate marriage therapist and counselor and the founding drummer of one of the world's most popular bands, Maroon 5. He started the band, which was originally called Kara's Flowers, in 1994, with his best friends Adam Levine, Jesse Carmichael, and Mickey Madden. After changing the name of the band to Maroon 5, they went on to have their first viral record called Songs About Jane, selling millions of albums and winning two Grammys. Despite the band's massive fame and success, Ryan was suffering with some deep physical and emotional pain, which eventually led to Adam kicking him out of the band in 2006. Ryan lost everything and found himself in the depths of addiction and despair before finding recovery in 2016 and completely reinventing himself and changing his life. He shares all of this today and more on the podcast. Today on the show, we discuss the story of starting Maroon 5 and what led to Ryan being kicked out of the band, what life was like after losing everything, the challenges of success and fame, what his current relationship is like with Adam Levine, how Ryan reinvented himself and got sober why he values recovery more than winning a Grammy, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Ryan Dusick to the Adversity Advantage Podcast. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to chat with you. And I think a great place for us to, to start is it's it's 2006. The band calls you in for, for a meeting at the house. And essentially, they ended up kicking you out of Maroon 5. Talk about what was going on. In your life at that time how are you feeling and like where did things go from here
0: well it was absolutely devastating when that happened and it wasn't something that i didn't see coming you know it was uh kind of a long time coming really i had been trying to come back from what were physical injuries playing the drums for about over a year at that point i think i was in a little bit of denial or just kind of in my mind still believing that um there was a way through this that somehow it was going to work out well um when deep down inside i really felt like this was going to end badly and i knew that th- that moment was coming um however that still didn't prepare me for when it did happen um how heartbreaking it was and uh but i you know it was kind of like reality crashing in because this was the band that i had spent you know over a decade building with my three and then four best friends um since we were in my parents garage when i was 16 years old Um, Adam, Jesse and Mickey and I started the band in in 1994 and this was 2005, six, somewhere around there, right at the point when we were having massive success for the first time after all of that work and all of those dreams coming true. A couple of years before that, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. You know, we were finally achieving our dreams. We were finally having all that success and playing on the biggest stages in the world. But I was struggling and, and suffering physically, but also mentally and emotionally, which was something I didn't have a full grasp on until later, that aspect of it.
1: Do you think that if you weren't struggling so much mentally and emotionally, you would have been able to kind of persevere and work out the physical issues
0: I mean, over time? You know, it's a complicated thing. There were a lot of different factors involved. There was a definite physical thing at that point, and and it might have been too late when it got to that level where my body was just breaking down and I couldn't really coordinate playing the drums anymore. But if I had sort of understood what was going on for me and been able to do some of the work long before then, uh, then yes, I think that I would have avoided the kind of injuries that I experienced physically or been able to work through them. Um, I would have avoided the kind of breakdown that happened on a a full mind-body level. because, you know, this, this was 20 years ago, right? There was no sort of public discourse about mental health mm-hmm. and self-care and wellness, at least not to the degree that we're starting to have that now, thankfully. So when I experienced certain things, um, I felt very alone in, in, in that experience. And I didn't, I, I didn't even have self-awareness about some of those things until it got bad enough that I was like, well, what's wrong with me? I feel like I'm, I'm falling apart. And again, even then, I didn't really fully understand the, the mind-body aspect, the, the the mental health aspect of it. Uh, I had this old pitching injury. I'd, I had messed up my shoulder in high school, sort of chronic tendinitis in my rotator cuff. And that started coming up in around late 2003, after we were on the road for about a year and a half um, promoting the album songs about Jane. You know, that was a very tangible thing that I was experiencing. And then it became this tightness and the stiffness and that became a sort of lack of coordination and it became a nerve issue i was going to all these different doctors and they were you know the orthopedist told me that i had this chronic chronic and they gave me uh shot injections in my shoulder and inside i knew that wasn't the whole story i knew there was more going on i went to a neurologist and they diagnosed me with something called uh thoracic outlet syndrome which is kind of like carpal tunnel of the, the whole arm and that explained a little bit more in terms of what i was experiencing physically but again it didn't feel like it was the whole picture and now i understand that there was it was sort of a slow moving trauma because i was somebody that i put a lot of pressure on myself i was a perfectionistic guy by nature sort of obsessive compulsive uh carried just a a low grade anxiety with me in a lot of the things that i did for that reason Um, and then you find yourself in this position where you've been on the road for two years performing day after day all the demands that go with that not just on stage but interviews and meet and greets and uh, in-store appearances and radio station appearances and so I was kind of wearing down and, and as a sort of introvert that could be exhausting too because I didn't have a lot of downtime or time to recuperate and then all of a sudden you add on top of that massive success and all of the expectations that come with that and all of the eyes and all of the you know the the expectation of myself to be my most dynamic self in every context to go on stage every night and be the best i can be and i find myself just constricting more and more and trying harder and uh you know not really having any perspective on what a healthy approach would be in terms of a, a mindful approach being able to relax and and center myself and find balance in my life. It was a life that was inherently out of balance. And so you combine all those things and it became not just this physical injury, but a sort of nervous breakdown.
1: You've talked about that, you kind of knew that this moment was coming where Adam was gonna have this conversation with you, the band was gonna have this conversation with you where they were like, hey, it's time to move on. We gotta make this new album. Was it because there had been like tension between you and the band members while you were going through all this? Or was it just because of your, a lot of your mental health issues you were going through and you were just self-sabotaging, had the imposter syndrome and you just knew that eventually something bad was gonna happen?
0: There wasn't a lot of tension. I mean, there were moments of tension just because there was a lack of communication. And so there was, there were misunderstandings that arose in the context of that. It it was really the, the elephant in the room. It was that of which we could not speak. Because everyone knew there was something going on with me and they knew that it was affecting my ability to play the drums, but nobody understood it. I mean, I didn't understand it. How could they understand it? And and my communication skills weren't great. I was just kind of burying the feelings and trying to pretend like everything was okay. So that would oftentimes just look like me going out with the guys on tour um, and pretending that I'm just having fun, like a rock star and time went on and going out and having a party. So that's what they saw, I think. And they knew that there was a lot going on underneath, but I think from their perception at times, maybe they saw a guy who was just trying to live it up and have fun and enjoy the fruits of our success while they were having to work really hard. But that's that's my fault because I was just not in a place where I was able to really allow my feelings to come to the surface, let alone express them, communicate them to my to my best friends. Um, So for that reason, there was a little bit of tension at times, but really more than anything, it was just, it was the elephant in the room. It was something that we all knew was going on, but we weren't talking about until we couldn't deny it anymore. Until it came to that point when it was like, okay, we have to make another record and Ryan can't play the drums well enough. And even if he can get through the record, um, we're going to get back out on the road and have a massive world tour booked. And then it's going to happen again. And we're going to have to scramble to find a replacement. We're going to have to cancel the tour. So, you know, I understand why they had to make that choice. At the time, of course, that didn't make it any easier. And I was angry at them. I understand now that that was sort of misdirected anger because I was angry at myself more than anyone. Um, I felt like I was a failure. I felt that I was defective in some way. And I really uh, felt like I had done this to myself. But, you know, knowing what I know now, I know I did the best that I could with what I had and what I understood. I didn't have the tools to work through that in a more productive way at that point in my life. Like I said earlier, there wasn't really a dialogue in terms of these things. So when I started to experience some of these things and I felt like I was breaking down, um, I didn't even have a vocabulary to sort of express what was going on or to have any self-awareness about it. So that's that's where I was at that moment in history and at that moment in my life and I and I did the best I could given those circumstances. Of course if I could do it over again there are things that I would do differently, but you hindsight is 2020 20, and I just try to apply some of the things that I learned in that process to all the things that I do now.
1: Just to provide some more context for the for the listeners, it wasn't like you just, you know, joined a band for like a year or two and then um, left. Then they, they blew up and got famous. Like you were with Maroon five. You started Maroon five, like you said, in the, your parents' garage playing with the, your, your best friends and the band members there. And then you were on this meteoric rise with them when you were going through what you just talked to that your departure of the band, you had experienced massive success. I think you guys had just either not or nominated or won a few Grammys. Like talk about like where the band was at as far as like success, like when you, um, when you departed, just, uh, I think they would really appreciate knowing that.
0: Yeah. I mean, to give uh, even more context, like, you know, we started the band when I was 16. The other guys were 14 going on 15. We were just idiot teenagers dreaming of this stuff, you know, and we were in my parents' garage. We were driving around in my hand-me-down Jeep Wagoneer uh, with all our gear in the back, playing clubs around LA, the, you know, pay-to-play clubs. And, uh, our, you know, we, we had visions of being the next Pearl Jam or, or the next, uh, at a certain point, the next Beatles, because we became huge Beatles freaks. Um, and we went for, you know, we, we got our first record deal right out of high school. And uh, we were told you're going to be the next Beatles or whatever at that point, And we believed it. And we were still teenagers. And we went on the road and we, you know, they spent a ton of money on us. They told us we we're going to be stars. Uh, we were on the road for six months and that album tanked. And so all of those dreams seemed to be shattered at that point point. and at the ripe old age of like 20 at that point, I thought our career was over. We had to kind of pick up the pieces and start over again at that point. And it took five years from that moment until we made songs about Jane and changed our name to Maroon 5. And during that time we had to do a lot of growing up and a lot of learning uh, about ourselves and about, uh, about music and about what it takes. It's not just being precocious kids with some talent. Um, there's a lot more that goes into having a hit record than just that. Um, and the, you know, the timing had to be right. There was a lot of things that had to, uh, the planets had to align, so to speak, to get to that point where we actually did have success. But even when that came, you know, "Songs About Jane" came out in 2002. In 2002 and three, we were on the road nonstop. We played over 500 shows just in those two years alone, and that was before we had a big hit that was on the way up driving ourselves around the country in a in a van uh just the five of us and a tour manager and a guitar tech you know we we just kept going around and doing one tour after another playing little clubs and then at a certain point playing little theaters and then theaters became opening for larger acts and larger theaters or and then it was arenas and then we were opening for matchbox 20 and john mayer and then finally two years in we're the headliners and we have our first platinum selling album and we have you know our first like number one hit with this love which was our second single harder to breathe was a moderate hit but it took like a a year for that record to kind of have its its run so it was a decade into being a band it was after failures and having to pick ourselves back up and then it was two years into that album where we finally had that success and then it was like you know, it was it was building, it was building, it was building, and then it just exploded. Mm. In two thousand four, uh, with this love and she will be loved, we were all over the world, you know, massive hits all over the world. And uh, <clears throat> you know, flying, uh jet lag became a factor for me. As sleep was always an issue for me, but now jet lag and having to perform when you haven't slept really in days. Um, but it but but the context was, you know, playing on saturday night live and playing on the tonight show and david letterman and uh you know just the biggest stages you can imagine live tv in front of like seven million people and uh a year of that and then we're winning grammy awards ironically we won best new Artists in 2005 after 11 years as a mm-hmm. band and and you know getting invited to the biggest parties clive davis's pre-grammy party we got we got invited to prince's house a couple of times uh, we met Stevie Wonder and Jimmy Page and <laughs> just all these people you only dream about, your, your heroes, uh, getting to meet these people. And so that was the context externally of everything that was going on, all of the things we dreamed about and the excitement of all that, which was wonderful. But then for me, at the same time, experiencing this breakdown that was um, an internal thing that was very hidden, like I said, I'm kind of sh- pushing it down and not really dealing with it. So there was a dichotomy between those things at that point in my life, between these really high highs and these really low lows.
1: What was the hardest part of all that for you, like during that time where you felt like you had all this external success, but inside you were just completely crushed? What was the most challenging part?
0: The hardest part for me was we were wanting to enjoy the success and, and, and feel proud of us for all the hard work we'd done and everything we'd put into this thing that we'd built. But then, inside this feeling of not deserving it, feeling undeserving of the success because I couldn't hack it, because there was something defective in me.
1: Was this before the shoulder injury re- recirculated, or was this? No, this that?
0: was this was at the point where I was really breaking down and not able to play the drums. Um, it wasn't something that happened overnight. It wasn't something that happened at one show or over the course of even one tour. It was incremental you know there were little signs of it maybe a, a year into our touring i would start to feel like i just didn't have the same control on the drums i would have a stiffness in my shoulder and and then i you know the guy started noticing some things maybe a year and a half two years in where uh certain things i used to play a million times perfectly and they were like what was that thing you missed a beat there or it's, it sounds a little Um, out of time or the the way you're hitting the kick drum is just not consistent and I didn't have a good answer for them They're, they're like are you not trying hard enough or something you're not are you losing focus and I was like absolutely not that is not the problem if anything it was the opposite it was hyper focus it was overthinking it was that perfectionistic attitude and and thinking that you know I just had to bear down and try harder which was actually making it more difficult for me that what I If I could go back and do it again, I would implement more meditative sort of Mm -hmm. state, you know, uh, going into it with relaxation and calm and just presence and not adding anything on top of it like judgment or criticism or, uh, you know, pushing myself beyond what felt comfortable and natural. I think in, in retrospect, I never got a real proper diagnosis at the time of the mental part of it, just of the physical stuff. But i've sort of diagnosed myself because i'm a therapist now yeah yeah, yeah. and i understand this stuff better um i think i would call what happened a a musician's dystonia uh, or focal dystonia athletes experience it and they call it the yips a lot of times which i i had heard as a baseball player as a kid the yips when all of a sudden you just can't throw the ball straight you know um golfers experience it they simple things like putting and all of a sudden their wrist does some this weird thing and they can't putt straight you'll remember uh Simone Biles you know in the in the Olympics had to pull herself out because all of a sudden she was having this thing where she would get lost in the air when she was tumbling which is more complicated than throwing a ball or or putting but and more dangerous Uh, but she understood pretty well at this point in history that that was a psychological thing that was going on that was um, preventing her from executing something she'd done a million times and I had always thought of it as like it's just performance anxiety. You know, you're, you're, you're overthinking it. You end up psyching yourself out and end up messing something up in the process when it's something you've done a million times and you really could do it without thinking because it's muscle memory. I've come to understand it in a slightly different way as a mental health professional. I see it as a trauma response. Now, it's something that when you've done it so many times and it's become so intense, such a part of your identity... Um, And then you're performing at the highest level as an athlete, you know, in the major leagues or as a, you know, an Olympic athlete or as as a concert pianist or a concert violinist. So much stress put on you over and over and over again to do this repetitive motion that at a certain point your nervous system sees it as a threat. You know, especially if you're feeling things like physical pain and fatigue and you're wearing down in the ways that I was. I think that my nervous system had a response that basically said to me, we're not going to let you do this anymore. Mm. You're killing yourself. You know, I couldn't look at it as trauma for a long time, I think, because I I felt bad calling it that. It was like, what happened to me wasn't that bad in comparison to the kind of traumas that people experience being in a war zone or experiencing childhood abuse. Um, But our nervous system doesn't know the difference. All it knows is when it perceives threat, right? Um, And I think that, Over the matter of, you know, a few years, my body just started recognizing the drums and performance as something that was threatening to me. And so it said, uh, if you're not gonna stop doing this, then we're gonna make you stop doing it. And that's when my body just stopped being able to coordinate playing the drums the way that it used to. Um, And so it really wasn't something I had a choice of at that point, it was kind of like, I look at it as a a healthy response now. It was like my body telling me, this isn't good for you. Mm. And we're going to protect you from hurting yourself any more than you already have. Um, in that way, it's, it's like, okay, maybe in the grand scheme of things, my body understood some things that my mind couldn't really yet at that point.
1: One of the things that, I want to know is you've you're, you've now been on both sides you're now a mental health professional and you've also you were also part of a band that at the time you left was one of the most famous bands in the world you just touched on earlier a lot of the things you experienced from a success point of view from a, what you were able to do as far as like party and lifestyle there's a lot of celebrities a lot of stars that struggle with with their mental health struggle with addiction and from the outside that like the average person might say like what do they have to worry about? They have money, they have fame, they have status, they live in an amazing house, they have a great family. Like knowing what you know now based on your own experience and then being on the other side of it a mental health professional, what is it about like being famous that is so destructive to people's mental health?
0: Well, it's a, it's a complicated intersection of a lot of things. I think that, you know, you look at people that are drawn to that life, people who want to be performers, um, Artists and creative people in general tend to have a predisposition for certain mental health challenges. Um, It's kind of, you take the good with the bad. I mean, uh, I I for one don't believe you need to be tortured in order to create good art. I did believe that at at one point in my life. Um, I think that you can be in a healthy place and create great art, but I think there is a reason why people that do have wounds and people that struggle with some things feel the desire to express themselves. And that is a healthy thing to pursue. But you take somebody with that predisposition and now you put them in a situation where all eyes are on them. There's a lot of expectation. There's a lot of maybe money riding on it, not just your own, but the whole team around you. There's the fans, there's all the people that have all these expectations. And now a lot of your self-worth and your identity is wrapped up in that success of getting that validation, which maybe if you had some of those issues to begin with, you never really had. And so it's a complicated push and pull where you want those things desperately. You want to maintain them and you'll do anything to maintain them because they're such a part of your self-esteem and your identity and how you go about um, defining yourself Uh, that, but at the same time, there's an extent to which you get pushed past your threshold of what is healthy for you. It's a life that's out of balance and the demands are so great where you forget that you're a human being, or at least the people around you forget that you're a human being. You know, the, For us, you know, it's one thing to look at a, a spreadsheet and, and say, oh yeah, we can fit in 500 shows in two years. There's enough days in those years to fit in that many shows. But you forget, like, these are human beings that have to do that day in and day out, and all of the things in between, driving for six to eight hours in between those shows, and setting up all our own gear, and breaking it down after every show, and having to be on all the time, and not having any downtime, you know, it's it's when you're looking at it from afar, if you're an agent creating the itinerary or if you're a fan who's just like, look, I, I paid good money for this ticket. I expect a great show. They're canceling a tour. What the hell is that? You know, right. I think the artists and the performers are mindful of that. There is a bottom line and there are their fans that they love that they want to, uh, you know, live up to what the expectation is. But there is that push and pull where at a certain point it becomes toxic to yourself. I wish I could say that there's a there's a you know a perfect balance that can be struck. Sometimes it is a life that's sort of inherently unbalanced, but having this dialogue and being able to understand the factors at play I think can go a long way in terms of being prepared for what may may come from that. Because once you're in it, you're sort of insulated. You're for us when when songs about Jane blew up, we were we were at the eye of the storm, you know. It was hard to really understand what real life was anymore because we were just in this little bubble traveling around the world and um and getting reports of you know gold records and platinum records and grammy nominations um so you lose a little bit of perspective on normal life so it's it's complicated uh, I, I wish that answer were were, were less complicated <laughs> but it, it's it's you know there's a lot of factors involved
1: you've been um addicted to benzodiazepines. which are highly addictive. You've been addicted to alcohol, which are highly addictive. And you've also been very, very famous knowing what you know about all this stuff. Like what has been the, the hardest addiction to break?
0: Well, for me, alcohol was definitely my drug of choice. That's the one that I would say, uh, I had a, a real addiction to, uh, there was no other drug that, uh, I looked at as something I was seeking out or, um, well, I mean, in, you mentioned benzodiazepines. Um, that was a dependence that got out of control, and in in concert with the alcohol became a real problem. I never said, "Hey, let's party. Let's take some benzos tonight." Right. Like that was never like my my thing. But the alcohol was causing such a problem that I was looking for other things to help deal with the anxiety and the withdrawals that I would experience. So I would use the benzos to try to manage the alcohol, which is just insanity. I mean it's so what we refer to as the insanity of addiction. Right. Um so I kind of got to this place where in trying to manage the alcohol I was going back and forth between I'd do like clonopin for a few days to get myself off of a binge and then and then I would try to wean myself off the clonopin and then I'd start drinking again and it just got everything got worse and worse. Um alcohol was something that, you know, I quit I probably quit a hundred times, you know, I went through those withdrawals and um And it was always, it got worse and worse actually, but it, it, you know, getting off of alcohol is never fun. Benzos are really tough to get off of though. Fortunately, I wasn't at the point where I had a massive dependence on it, like really high uh, quantities of it. Um, But they got me off of the alcohol first. Uh, That takes like a week detox just to get it out of your system and kind of establish some balance. I mean, it takes longer than that to establish real sobriety, um, which is a whole other conversation. But the benzos, I mean, they had to wean me over the course of like a month, even though I was on a pretty small dose um, because it's dangerous because you can have seizures. Um, the feeling is just like absolute doom. Mm. Uh, forget anxiety. You just feel the sense of doom trying to come off of that because um, they work really well, right? They knock out the anxiety, but they be, they, they're very addictive because they... Um, They make you dependent on on the drug in order to deal with that anxiety. And also, once you pull it away, you feel like you have no skill set for dealing with that feeling of anxiety. But yeah, I think in the long run, um, alcohol was the longer addiction. It was the more um, intense love affair, you know, relationship that sort of uh, spanned from the the honeymoon phase of like absolutely thinking it was the greatest thing in the world. And it was the answer to all of my problems to being, you know, the thing that w- was causing all of my problems and that was sending me down uh, deeper and deeper into this spiral. You know, I did quit a hundred times and it wasn't until the hundred and first time that it actually stuck and that I was ready to really do the work that was required. So even though the withdrawal wasn't as protracted as it was with the benzos, um, that was the harder addiction to kick because that was the one that I was I was like convinced was a relationship I was gonna have for the rest of my life.
1: And then did you ever, was there ever a point where you became like addicted to to the fame? Like as you were getting all this notoriety and press and people were giving you all this validation throughout your your early career?
0: I don't think to a high degree. I mean, I never, to be honest, I didn't go into it for the fame. I mean, I liked the idea of girls screaming and and you know making good money and and having the you know the benefits that go along with that success. But quite honestly, the reason why I started playing music uh, was for personal reasons. It was about expression, and what I enjoyed most about the band was the process of making music the creative process the collaboration between us i just recognized pretty early on that we had something really special in that regard there was a chemistry between us and when i look back all the all the success and the adulation stuff like i'm glad i got to experience that but that's not what i miss Mm. what i miss is getting into a room with my buddies and creating magic out of nothing like that was so it's such a wonderful experience. That's what I'm most grateful for. Is to, you know, I didn't re- realize that that not every band has that. Right. You know, I just thought when we were teenagers, I thought like every band in, in the country is having this much fun and this much of a feeling of connection, and meaning and purpose coming from their their teammates. Um, and then it's in retrospect that I realized just how special it was that we had that connection and that we made each other better in that way. And um, so that was what was really special to me. But that being said, you know, when you get used to certain things and then you have to walk away from them, there was an extent to which it was like, all this, all this goes away. Like, I don't get invited to the, the parties at Prince's house anymore. And I don't, uh, and, it, and there is a little bit of a sadness that comes with that. And that's interesting. And it's, it's telling. I mean, you ask like, what is it about that lifestyle that can be toxic? It's like, I wasn't even somebody who went into it for those reasons. But then we spent a few years in that place, and so it, and it was hard for me to walk away from that. So it shows you that it is addictive, you know, that it is something that once, once it sort of sinks its teeth into you, um, you know, returning to normal life, just little things, little things like oh, they're not going to give us free clothes anymore, <laughs> you know. Every time we do a photo shoot or something, they would give us free clothes, and I never had to go pay for my own expensive clothes. And now it's like, now if I want a nice outfit, I have to go buy it myself. And it was like, of course you do. Everyone in the world has to, except for like 0.001% of the people who are in that position in the world. Uh, But you forget that, you know, you get so insulated in that world and you you forget what normal life is. So yeah, I mean, I I look back and I I don't miss that stuff, but I do recognize that it was a challenge to reintegrate back to normal life.
1: What was the most painful part of your exit of... Maroon 5, because you, you mentioned the lifestyle you got used to and it was nice, but the, the biggest thing you missed was just playing with your buddies. Like, what was the hardest part of all that for you? Confidence, maintaining a clean diet, staying active, and exercising discipline are key indicators of a healthy individual. The practice of discipline extends to various aspects of life, including sleep patterns, dietary choices, and overall body care. Embracing discipline not only yields short-term benefits, but also lays a strong foundation for long-term health. It is important to recognize that skin health is an integral part of this holistic approach and should not be disregarded. Fortunately, incorporating skincare into your daily routine can be effortless, and that's where Caldera Lab comes in. With their products clinically proven to reduce wrinkles, fine lines, and signs of aging, Caldera Lab proudly stands as a leader in men's skincare. I'm a big fan of taking care of my skin and didn't realize I was only scratching the skincare surface by using store-bought products and getting a facial every few months. I'm a 35-year-old bachelor and spend a lot of time on camera, and I decided that I need to do an even better job at maintaining my healthy skin. After seeing many of my friends use Caldera Lab, I decided to try their top-notch products. Their formulas combine pharmaceutical-grade science with nature's purest and most potent ingredients and are simple to use. I've been using their Regiment Bundle twice a day and have already had several compliments about the difference in my skin. Caldera Labs Regiment routine begins with their Clean Slate, which is a balancing cleanser to get things started. Then I add their base layer, a nutrient dense fortifying moisturizer to help hydrate my skin. Then I finish off with the Good, which is their clinically proven multifunctional serum that helps my skin look and feel tighter and smoother. So if you want to upgrade your skin and confidence with products that use exceptional ingredients, head to CalderaLab.com and use my code DUG to get 20% off. Again, head to CalderaLab.com and use my code DUG to get 20% off. Be ready to experience a whole new level of health and skincare with Caldera Lab. Now back to the show.
0: The hardest part was that my whole identity was wrapped up in being in that band. And I don't just mean being the successful drummer in the successful band called Maroon 5. Uh, I mean, it was my social life. It was my spiritual life. It was my self-definition. It was everything that I held closest to me in terms of what, where I derived pleasure and enjoyment and purpose and fulfillment. And, um, and that all kind of just went away in an instant because those guys were my best friends since I was 16. Uh, All of my best college friends from UCLA had sort of coalesced with the band scene and uh, we were at the center of that. And it wasn't that they necessarily turned their back on me or anything like that, it was just that um, I was in such a dark place, I didn't know how to be around those people and they didn't really know how to be around me because it was triggering to me. You know, I would show up to parties at Adam's house, I would go to the concerts, and I would try to pretend like I was having fun and like it was the good old times, but it would bring up so much painful stuff for me that it wasn't fun and I would have to be burying the feelings in order to just try to enjoy it. So I stopped showing up as much. And so I really did feel like I lost a big part of me, not just the success and not just the, the career, uh, but I didn't know who I was at that point. I, I had lost um, so much of who I, whom I had, I had thought I was to my core uh, and leaving this void uh, that was hard to fill. And the only way I really knew how to fill it was with self-medicating with alcohol.
1: What was the reinvention process like for you to like rediscover yourself?
0: Ah, uh, the good stuff. <laughs> uh, reinvention, it took a while. I mean, it took, there was a good decade there from when I left the band to when I got clean and sober. Um, and started this whole other chapter of my life. Um, and it it really was, it started with baby steps. It started with just going into rehab and getting clean. Um, and as terrifying as that was and not knowing where it would take me, I had no grand scheme of where my life was going to go. I just knew that I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, yeah. uh, to use an old cliche. Yeah. And But it quickly became... A realization that what I had been lacking in all of that was a sense of connection and purpose. That was the thing that I had lost uh, and that I was craving most. And I found that very early on in recovery in service. I was in rehab and then I was at an outpatient clinic and then I volunteered at that outpatient clinic for two years uh, because I realized that the feeling of being of service to others gave me a feeling of purpose and connection Um, as great or even greater than the purpose of creating music and performing Um, so that just was very enlightening to me and I realized that whereas in my mind I'd been thinking I had this great purpose and it was gone and I was just going to have to deal with that for the rest of my life and just try to figure out how to not be totally miserable Mm -hmm. um, I now realized that purpose was something that I could create for myself Uh, that walking back towards life and finding things that felt fulfilling for me uh, was really just a process that I had to um, allow myself to, to have enough acceptance and humility to walk into. So that, like I said, that started with me volunteering and I was getting a lot of really positive feedback in terms of just being able to be really present with the newcomers, offering feedback, I was running groups, offering support, and just discovering some talents that I didn't realize I had. So that led me to wanna to go back to school and get a master's degree in clinical psychology because my new passion was mental health. Addiction recovery was the impetus for that, but right. it kind of be- grew into psychology in general and, and mental health. And I thought I would I would work at a, at a recovery center of some kind, but then I was in grad school and I was studying psychology and i becoming so passionate about it and my horizons being expanded. Um, that I just kind of left things a little bit more open-ended in terms of where it would take me. And in the course of that, I realized I had a story to tell that now had a happy ending. And with that happy ending, you know, I could potentially inspire others that see themselves in my struggles that recovery is possible. And that as scary as it is to, to, you know, sort of wake up one day and decide to change and grow, uh, that it is possible that it's available to all of us when we're willing. So I started writing this book, Harder to Breathe, while I was still in grad school. I, I just—it started pouring out of me. It was almost like I was on a mission. It was therapy for me too. I mean, I had been doing a lot of my own therapy, and I'd been in AA meetings, telling my story over and over again. Uh, and now I was in grad school, writing a lot of self-reflection papers and case studies. And every time I would talk about the things that I had gone through, the story would evolve a little bit, the narrative would change a little bit, and the message, the takeaway, would would grow into something more helpful and productive for me each time I would tell the story. Uh, so I knew that writing the book would be ultimate closure for me. It would be the long-form version of that, a sort of narrative therapy. And it was that. It was a process that was very fulfilling. It was it was probably the the thing that was most fulfilling since I'd left the band uh because it was a creative process and it and it required me to invest myself in something holy and express myself um and do something that was another passion of mine. I had always loved writing um but I had to do it you know in this very meticulous way, but also um really go back to some really painful places and process them in a way that I really hadn't fully, even though I'd done the therapy, um, it was, it was cathartic. And when I, I found myself when I was on the second draft of it, I, when I was telling the story of the early years of the band, there was a lot of fun and inspiration and I was feeling lighter. I was feeling inspired again when I was writing that stuff. And then I got into the the times when I had the troubles that I did and it was heavy Mm and I felt myself getting a little depressed as I was doing it. But then I worked through it and I got to the last third of the book where I talk about my recovery and then I was uplifted again and I felt inspired and I felt hopeful. And so I I recognized that if I was having that experience as I was writing it and crafting it, then there was a good chance that a reader might have the same feeling as well and therefore might find some inspiration in it. And so all at once I graduated with my master's degree, I became a therapist, I went out and got a publishing deal for my book and I started this new journey, which has just been evolving over the last couple of years of being a mental health professional and now an advocate because I've been out promoting this book, Harder to Breathe. And in doing so, I'm telling my story a lot and I'm talking about the things I've learned. I'm sharing insights that um, unless you've been through the things that I've been through and found hope on the other side, you might not be aware of. And so um, advocacy has been, you know, a big part of what I do, and wanting to be a part of that conversation, destigmatizing, asking for help, uh, recognizing the issues as they arise, and and giving a little bit, hopefully, a little bit of wisdom about things you can do about it. And so it's it's given me this whole other level of purpose and fulfillment in my life that I didn't even realize was possible when I was struggling. I just thought, as I said, I was just going to go through the rest of my life and try to get through it the best I could, and. But now all this other stuff is on the menu now, which is really exciting and it's a lot of fun. And I'm just in a different place in my life now. I'm in my 40s, and uh, you know, being of service, doing something that that uh, that makes me feel good about what I'm putting out into the world matters to me as much as it ever has. So this this kind of opportunity is just wonderful.
1: You talked about how now you're able to look back at what happened to you with your exit from the band and the injuries and the mental health stuff as like a trauma response and that your body was just preventing you from like taking that next step. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned that after you were kicked out of the band, there was all this misdirected anger towards Adam and the other band members, even though you knew you were just, even though you know now that you were projecting your own insecurities and anger towards them. Like what was the process like of coming to peace with all that? And when did you like come to this realization that that door is officially closed And it's time to to move forward into the next chapter of your life
0: well i think it was natural that i would feel some very conflicted emotions with things ending the way they did um and i I would pretty early on i would try to i would try to pretend that i didn't feel those things i would go to the concerts and um and i would try to put on a happy face and just be happy to see my brothers But deep down inside, I would still have that sort of jealousy or resentment, you know, asking, you know, why them and not me and and just anger, angry at them or angry at the, the universe or God or whoever had done this to me, but really still angry at myself. Right. I think that that the addiction, the alcoholism, a lot of times when you're stuck in addiction, you're stagnant in terms of your growth. I think. Pretty much all the time right, i don't know anyone right. who's yeah. like growing by leaps and bounds while they're stuck <laughs> yeah. in alcoholism. Yeah, yeah yeah and you hear this story a lot it's like you meet somebody who's 60 years old who's been drinking since they were 12 years old and essentially they're emotionally there's they're still 12 years old right yeah. so i, I think I was, that that probably was stunting my ability to get past some of those things and find ultimate closure so when i got that out of the way when i was able to get sober Within the first year of sobriety, I think, I went to my first Maroon 5 show sober. And it was just a totally different experience for me. I think a lot of the things that I was projecting onto it, I, I recognized were not there. I mean, the big party that I thought I was missing out on was not there anymore. In mean, backstage, it was like nannies and, and little kids and nobody was d- drunk and there was no there was no after party. The, the The show was the party, you know. And, 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 and I recognized that in that moment, I looking at what they were doing, I had nothing but gratitude for having been a part of it. I, I was happy for them and all of their success and proud of them for being able to continue to to continue the legacy of what we began. Um, and just and again, just happy that I had been a big part of that, that I had been a part of the process and building it. And so I think it was it required of me to get clean to, to be able to see that. Um, and to start to grow and find, um, and also to find my own self-esteem again, you know, my self-esteem had gotten so beaten down by everything that happened that I, um, when I, when I came out the other side and I started finding things about myself that I was proud of and I had confidence again, doing things that felt purposeful in life. Um, it was a lot easier for me to be less self-centered and to just be present and to be happy and grateful for everything.
1: What are some of the things that have helped you rebuild your self-esteem?
0: Well, we say in the recovery community a lot, you know, there's nothing that builds self-esteem like esteemable acts. And that can be as simple. There's a reason why they tell you to just go to a meeting and set up chairs, you know, or greet people or like just listen to somebody or share your story. Very simple acts of, of, of showing up and being there for another human being. Um, you do it to get out of yourself or you do it because it's helpful to you. But you gain something even more in the process of, of, uh, you know, of being of service because it makes you feel like you have something to offer. So that was the first thing that, that really struck me. was like, I actually feel good about myself when I'm doing those things, you know, just at, at, I was at the Betty Ford clinic and I was in detox for a couple of days. And then they put me in, in the general population after that, if that's what they call it. Um, yeah. and, and, uh, and even just like a week or two in, when I was like the shakes were were dying down and I was feeling a, a bit acclimated to the process, you'd see the newcomers co- just coming in out of detox that were shaking like a leaf and terrified. And just the simple act of helping them to their room, you know, giving them the itinerary and explaining the process and assuring them they're going to be okay. You know, I felt exactly like you did when I got here, and it's only been a week or two, and I feel a lot better already. Uh, just that simple act of kindness uh, went a really long way and feeling like, okay, maybe I do have something to offer this world, you know, and then it just kind of grew from there. I just kept following that feeling, mm. you know, whatever felt fulfilling in the same way at that moment, that's all that it was. But then two years later, it was volunteering, you know, a slightly higher level of service. And then it was em- another couple of years later, it was embracing talents that I had either forgotten about or were new passions. You know, I had forgotten that I loved to write so much and then i wrote that the, my book and now i've been writing a, a column for variety magazine i've i've embraced all these old passions and new passions and all of that coming together and i think really the 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 underlying thing with all of it is openness being open to the possibilities of what life can offer you because you know when i was in my addiction and when was in, when i was struggling with my mental health i wouldn't have been able to recognize an opportunity if it crossed my path because I was so wrapped up in my own crap that I either wouldn't see the opportunity or I'd be too terrified to walk towards it. In recovery, having been humbled, having reached a place of acceptance and openness, uh, I can see an opportunity a mile away now. And I'm like, you know what? If that scares me, if it terrifies me, it's probably something I need to do, Mm -hmm. right? At, At the very least, it's an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to overcome another anxiety, but at the very best, it could be something really special. It could be another horizon that I hadn't even anticipated walking into. And and just following that, just sort of taking one step after another into those things has offered me more and more opportunities that I didn't see coming. I'm doing public speaking now, which was something that used to terrify me. It's still nerve wracking, but it's such a fulfilling process and I get to share my story and and get good feedback from people that tell me all the time, you know, I really needed to hear that today. You know, that was really helpful for me, which makes me feel good. And and so, you know, none of that would have been possible if I was still stuck in that little silo I was in, where I was protecting myself and avoiding anything uncomfortable, right?
1: What do you think it's? What do you think about your story is is the most relatable to the everyday person who maybe is struggling with addiction or trying to find recovery?
0: well i mean there's very few few people that probably have been through the specific things that i've gone through in terms of the band and the level of success that we had and and the opportunities we had in that regard but the things that i struggled with are very common Uh, in every industry there are people that struggle with imposter syndrome Uh, people that are driven people that experience that perfectionism that perfectionism the perfectionistic attitude that can cause problems as much as it can be a benefit at times you know people that are that hold themselves to a really high standard and and demand excellence. I've, I've found that there's a difference between excellence and perfection, right? Um, but so, it, you know, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, doesn't matter what walk of life you've come from. Uh, we've all had anxieties in our life. We've all had times when we felt insecure. Um, we've all had times when we felt down or depressed. And so I think that there's a little bit of, something for anyone that's had any of those challenges in their lives and then just to see you know to have had the extremes that I've experienced in my life from the highest highs you could possibly imagine to the lowest lows and to be able to pull through that and find new meaning and new purpose totally separate from the past um, I think that's that's what people seem to relate to most is the idea that even if I'm really struggling with this stuff there's always that opportunity and possibility if I'm willing to be open to it. What's been more meaningful to you winning a Grammy or finding recovery? I would have to say finding recovery. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm so grateful for to look at my shelf and see that we did that, you know, that we got those Grammy awards and it's a nice thing to put in your byline, you know? (laughs) Um, but ultimately it's just a trophy. Yeah. Um, it's a symbol of a decade of hard work. Um, and some good fortune and timing and luck and stuff recovery and everything that's come with it was all me (laughs) and the support of the people that helped me get there right I mean that's that was something that I had to earn through everything that I struggled with and everything that I had to overcome Um, and that's probably why I mean I look at the book which will never sell as many copies as songs about Jane uh, but I'm equally or maybe more proud of that than I am of of the of of the music that we made for a couple of reasons. It's something that, you know, I, I had to earn with 40 years of my life, my entire life story up until that point, provided that story and provided me the moment to do that. And it's something that I went into my little man cave and and created myself over the course of um, a couple of years, really, when you do all the talk about all the editing and everything. And it's my story. and And it's something that Nobody else could have told that story, but me. And I'm profoundly proud of the work that we did together creating Rune 5 and creating songs about Jane. Um, But this is something that offers hope and offers, um, it has an altruistic element to it, which makes it more meaningful for me. Um, So, you know, for all of those reasons, recovery and everything that comes with it uh, is just a little bit more more meaningful than, (laughs) certainly than the Grammy award. But, um, but it's all part of the whole story. You know, I mean, you can't, you can't have where I'm at in my life now without the Maroon 5 story. And you can't have where I am in my life now without the struggle for 10 years of addiction and chronic anxiety and all that stuff. I'm not one of those people who says it all happened for a reason necessarily. But I know that all of the, the great things that I have in my life now and the things that I enjoy most, they wouldn't be if it weren't for those things.
1: You mentioned the book. And I know Adam Levine wrote the forward to the book, and he talked about in the forward that kicking you out of the band was like one of the hardest things he's ever had to do in his life. Because, like you said, you guys were so close; you were best friends. What's your relationship like with him now?
0: Adam and I will always be brothers. Um, you know, we don't talk as much as I would like. He's pretty busy. I'm right. pretty busy, and um, but that happens. You know, with old friends, there are friends that you you always cherish your relationship, whether it's a college friend or somebody um, you had a a special experience with at one point in your life, you know, you might grow apart. But the funny thing is though, that whenever we do talk, it's like no time has passed whatsoever. And it's still, we both see through all of the trappings of whatever we're doing currently. And I think we both relate to each other as teenagers still. (laughs) You know, Adam, I, I, I look at him and I'm so proud of him for the star that he's become. You know, I go to the shows whenever I have a chance I most recently went to Las Vegas to watch their residency opening night of their residency, and I'm just I'm just so impressed by all of them. They put on a great show, um, but Adam really owns a room. He's become you know this great pop star, rock star, whatever you want to call it. But at the same time, when I look at him with the tattoos and the muscles and all this stuff, and the the image that he projects and that everyone sees, like that's not really what I see. I still see a 14 year old kid with acne. And he'll always be that to me because that's the brother that I started the band with, and I think he'd probably say the same thing about me. You know, um, he's proud of me and everything that I'm doing, and he sees where I'm at in my life and and the good things that I'm involved in. Um, but he, he will still probably describe me as an idiot. You know, a 16 year old goofy idiot that we used to just bum around and. stupid shit together you know so it's fun when we do talk it's it's silly it's goofy we'll have moments of of seriousness when we'll um we'll talk about the things that are going on in our life and he'll he'll tell me about his kids and uh, i'll talk about the things i'm working on and uh but then most of the time we're just trying to make each other laugh and and saying stupid stuff like we would when we were teenagers
1: so knowing what you know now and having all the tools to optimize your mental health and your anxiety and let's just say that for the sake of argument that your shoulder and everything was fully healed if adam called you today and was like hey we want you back in the band what do you say
0: that's a complicated answer uh because one part of me would absolutely love that as much as anything um uh, and and at certain points in my recovery have thought um maybe something like that is possible or something that i, I could work towards not like rejoining the band but right. like just getting on stage with them in some capacity. But then there's some certain realities in terms of my relationship to music and, and the drums, which are challenging. Uh, and I don't know at the end of the day if that would be the best thing for me. Right. I think that, that you know, I've overcome so much and the anxiety is something I still experience, but it's not, it doesn't cause problems for me the way that it used to. I'm certainly um, seven years into sobriety. Um, in a lot of ways, I'm thriving in most ways in my life um, and benefiting the things that I'm doing. However, the drums is kind of where my trauma is, right? So when I sit at the drums and in my relationship to that, there are times still um, that I'm working through the baggage that I carry. Um, There have been times when I have felt like I was making more progress and then times when I've felt like I've had a setback. And so I would love more than anything to say that I'm done with that process and that I've overcome it completely and that I can play the drums as well as I would like, or that, that's a possibility that I could play with the band or that I would that, or that that would be a good thing for me even. Um, But I don't know. It's still, it's sort of a a work in progress as to whether that'll ever be a good thing or, or or the right thing for me or for anyone. But, but there will always be that tinge in me of like, but some of it might be ego. You know, I still, it's like, I've overcome a lot of the things that were challenging and in, in some ways getting up on stage and playing one song would be the ultimate closure of that part. You know, saying I overcame that. I came back to the to the scene of the crime, and this time I was able to do it, and and just be able to to feel that accomplishment of having overcome that. But some of that, it's like, why do I need to do that? I, what do I need to prove at this point? Like, I would like for it to be, if that ever did happen, it's just an opportunity to have fun mm. with my old buddies, and it would be just as fun to do it in my in my man cave. You know, to have them over and just jam out for an afternoon and do that kind of thing. Um, so any of the above, if any of that comes to be, I'll be grateful. If it doesn't, I'll be in acceptance.
1: So Ryan, I want to thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your heart, your story, and for your insights. If people want to learn more about what you have coming up next, if they want to buy the book, where's the best place to do that?
0: Uh, well, the the book, Harder to Breathe, you can get it anywhere. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on barnesandnoble.com. Um, and you can get it in stores if you want to find it. Uh in terms of what I'm doing as a therapist, as a speaker, um, you can go onto my website, ryandusick.com. I try to keep it up to date, but there's also, uh, you can reach out to me if you're looking for therapist, life coach, uh, speaker, motivational speaker. And then my Instagram page is f- just a fun way to kind of keep up with stuff day to day. I keep that most up to date, at uh, Ryan Michael Dusick is, uh, is my name on there. And, uh, yeah, I just, I have old videos of the band. I have new videos of me speaking and, uh, just, you know, try to, try to be part of the the modern age.
1: (laughs) Awesome, man. Well, I'll make sure to link that stuff in the show notes and, um, encourage everybody to go check out Ryan's stuff, get his book and Ryan, thanks again for coming on the podcast.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for having me, man.
1: You got it, man.